turn over in your Bibles. You can turn over in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 11 and 12 today. And uh, we'll be talking on Paul's sixfold prescription for prayer. Paul's sixfold prescription for prayer. We're only going to get two, maybe through two of these today. But um, for those of you who have been with us, we've been dealing with this uh, text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we've talked a lot about much time in the pending wrath and judgment of Christ when he comes the second time. And every week I'm kind of like, okay, Lord, can we we move on? (laughs) Because we've been talking about it so much. It's, but it's important, I think, that we talk about it more than ever because, unfortunately, a lot of churches don't talk about the wrath of God. They don't talk about the holiness of God. Uh, they don't speak of these things that are hard to hear sometimes for us. As believers, we take heart that, wow, we don't have to worry about this. We're protected. We will be returning with Christ at this time. We won't be under his wrath The Bible says, for all those who put their faith or trust in Christ, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we have a lot to look forward to, which is blessing and and hope and all that. Um, And we've been spending a lot of time in this. And remember, Paul is trying to write to this small church and really encourage them. That's his heart. And if you look at First and Second Thessalonians, we already went through First Thessalonians, but in Second Thessalonians as well, Paul never really uh, rebukes them. They're a model church. They're doing everything right, you could say, and they're not perfect because they did have some issues, but very minimal. And, and Paul really wants to encourage them. And yet, even though they were a model church and they were doing everything right, they were dealing with extreme persecution and suffering. And so Paul, just as a reminder, Paul is writing them to encourage them, and but preaching on these last couple weeks, verses 5 through 10, basically, about the day of the Lord and everything, it can be kind of discouraging. And so we have to remind ourselves, wait a minute, we're not under that. We're we're called apart from that. We'll be out of here. Uh, You know, the Lord is returning as we learned in in 1 Thessalonians, and we will be snatched off the face of the earth. And so we just look forward to that time. But his goal is to encourage them. And I'm thinking, what better way to encourage someone than to remind them, to provide a template for them uh, about the extreme privilege we have as believers to communicate with the living God, our creator, whenever we want. He doesn't keep office hours. I mean, you know, we don't have to knock on the door and, hey, can I come in? No. You know, through Christ, we have full access to the throne of grace. And so it's it's just a wonderful thing to talk about this subject matter of prayer. And Paul kind of outlines here what I call six six points of a prescription for prayer. And um, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read just verses 11 and 12, and then we'll pray and then you can have a seat. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 to 12, Paul writes here to this church, he says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may 
make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask your blessing upon these verses as we be just begin to kind of introduce them and look at them for the next couple weeks, but pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth you have before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. This, this is, isn't really a prayer that he's praying. He's, he's, it's more of a, he's giving them information about how he prays for them. Okay, so this isn't like the Lord's Prayer that so many people recite, which was never really meant to be recited. However, it is Scripture, and there's nothing wrong with reciting it. But um, if you grew up like me in the Catholic Church, you could recite it in in a couple seconds. And it didn't mean anything, really. It was just something you rambled off because you got in trouble, and the priest said, go say, you know, (laughs) five Our Fathers or whatever it was. Um, but this isn't that kind of a prayer. He's, he's more letting them know, I think, uh, really trying to encourage their hearts once again, that, hey, I'm praying for you, and here's how I'm praying for them. And you'll notice that as we study these verses over the next couple of weeks, that this isn't, like I said, a prayer that we pray, but he's giving us a six-fold, you could say, prescription for prayer. When you pray, he could be saying, Involve these ingredients in your prayer. And I think, unfortunately, today, among a lot of Christians, and we all know this, um, it seems that our prayers, a lot of times, are, are directed to the wrong things, you could say. Um, and so this isn't a prayer per se, even though his letters have many prayers in them. As a matter of fact, you you won't find a letter from the Apostle Paul without the mention of prayer or a prayer that he prayed for somebody. That's how important prayer was for him. Uh, But I think we all need, and I think you could say amen to this, a reminder of how to pray, why we pray, what to pray. Because sometimes we forget. And uh, ever since I've been a new believer Way back when I got saved the first time, and I was introduced to my first prayer meeting, it was a strange. It was just strange to me. Because I remember, even in the dormitory, first of all, I didn't even pray out loud. I just prayed to myself. I grew up in a Catholic church. You didn't really pray out loud much in the church, so I just prayed to myself. And the guy next to me hit me, kind of elbowed me, and, and he said, are you going to pray? I said, I already did. You know? And... Well, we didn't hear you. I said, well, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> you know, and I, and I felt a little inadequate to pray out loud as a new believer. And I was in this new college, Christian college, and all these guys were, had grown up in Christian homes. And, so, and they all kind of laughed at it. But I remember the RA saying, well, that's a good point. You know, so, and so many times we, we take our prayer meetings and we take our times of prayer and we think rather than really communicating with God about anything, all we're doing is informing everybody else in the circle what our business is. Kind of like as if God doesn't already know. <laughs> so we spend minutes and minutes and minutes, and then, you know, this person, and then we went here, and then, you know, and it's like, what are you doing? That's not prayer. That's not prayer. 
That's just information. And so we have to be careful when we come to this. And we've all done that, me included. We've all done that, you know. But prayer meetings have always just been a little odd. And then there's always those people that pray, and, and you know, it's like they just keep on saying the same thing over and over again. And it's like, wow, if you would talk to somebody like that, a real person, the way you're talking to God right now, they'd probably think you're nuts. I mean, I've heard people in prayer meetings, you know, Father God, you know, we ask Father God that you would, Father God, just bless our meeting today, Father God. And Father God, we, and I'm thinking, wow, if somebody talked to me, hey, Steve, what are you going to, Steve, what are you going to do later today, Steve? Steve, are you going for lunch? Steve, Steve, I'd, I'd be like, are you crazy? What are you doing? And so we kind of lose our minds a little bit. And I'm not trying to be critical, and every, but we have to stop and use some common sense when it comes to our prayer. And why are we praying? And what are we praying? Most of the times, Christians pray in regard to themselves. And we pray for those we love. And a lot of times it's for very, very shallow things. Very shallow things. And a lot of the prayers are often misdirected, they're very short-sighted, they're very focused on here and now. You're not going to see that in Paul's prayers. Because his mind wasn't here. As a matter of fact, I've sat in prayer meetings where it's just downright selfishness being displayed. I mean, Christians typically pray for health, they pray for happiness, they pray for success, personal benefit, comfort, all those things. Lord, fix all the little problems in my life. Heal my body. Take care of my home. Give me a job. Give me a car. Give me a husband. Give me a wife. Promotion. I need money. Whatever it might be. And all those things certainly make up part of our lives. I'm not discounting that. All I see is when I look at Paul's prayers, when I look at the Lord's prayers, those are way down on the list. All those I'm not saying you don't pray for things like that. Don't, don't misread what I'm saying. But they shouldn't be the priority, clearly. And you'll see that when we look at a couple scriptures. They're, they're, they're very low on Paul's list. You don't see Paul praying for such things. You don't see even our Lord, who was really our model, right, praying for such things. As a matter of fact, just turn over to Matthew chapter 6. Because... The Lord brings this up to his followers, and he wants them to understand that um, what the concerns of this life should be and what they shouldn't be. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says to them, he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. How many of us have ever been anxious about our life? The rest of you are liars, you know. So, I mean, you've all been anxious about it. We've all been anxious about our lives at some point or another. He says, don't be anxious about your life. And then he gives some examples. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more, here's the priority, than food and the body more than clothing? And then he gives an illustration. Kind of a humorous illustration, really. He goes, look at the birds of the air. 
They don't do anything. They neither sow nor they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Then he asked the question, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your lifespan? (laughs) And why are you anxious about clothing? Gives another illustration. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon was one of the richest people that ever lived. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, (laughs) short life, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You don't ever have to inform God about anything. He already knows it. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all the things he just talked about, and a lot more actually, will be added to you. Verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He, he's basically telling his followers here, you know what, don't take any thought about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Why? Because he knows full well that God supplies all those things. He is able to supply all of those things. I mean, he's, he's kind of saying, get, get on with life. Get on with seeking matters that relate to eternal things, to relate to the kingdom of God. You're spending so much time and energy worrying about your daily sustenance and what you're going to put on and, and all sorts of other things. You're not having time to invest in eternity. You're not having time to, to really dwell on eternity to relate to the kingdom of God. And sometimes we ask for things and we ask wrongly. James 4.2 tells us, James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask what? Wrongly, it says. Why? To spend it on your own passions. So I think, to be honest, we need to really take a, a hard look at how we pray. And what we pray for, and when we pray, and who we pray for, all these things. Because sometimes we're not only praying wrongly, but we, we pray for the wrong things and for the wrong reasons, I would say. So today we're just going to introduce our text and a couple, cover a couple points here. But uh, I want to read an illustration I got it out of a commentary, but it was written by Ted Daniels, and it's, it's called John From, and it's The Cargo and Catastrophe. That was the name of the article. 
And it reads this way. It says, among the more unusual religious movements in the world are the cargo cults of the South Pacific. Though their origins date back to the 19th century, they experienced an upsurge in popularity during World War II. As part of their island-hopping campaign against the Japanese forces, the Americans often used remote islands as supply depots and even air bases. And the dazzling array of modern technology, uh, technological devices they brought with them, such as airplanes, jeeps, modern weapons, refrigerators, radios, power tools, cigarette lighters that magically produced fire, these all appeared supernatural things to the islanders. They couldn't understand it. And as a result, some of them concluded that the white men must be gods <laughs> who flew in out of the sky bearing these amazing gifts. And eventually the island bases were abandoned as the fighting drew near closer to the Japanese home islands and stuff was left on these islands. And these tribesmen found their way of life permanently changed because they were exposed to what they called the cargo gods. And the materialistic bounty that they, they brought with them. And so in honor of these cargo gods, they actually built shrines to the cargo gods. They, they built airplanes and they built towers and they built hangars out of bamboo and all kinds of things. And these were places of worship. For these people on the islands. And they would worship silly things like cigarette lighters that were left behind and cameras and eyeglasses and pens and nuts and bolts. And they were vainly praying to these cargo gods to bring back more stuff. And their, their chiefs, the article says, uttered magical phrases in their prayers in their temples that they built. Such as, Roger, <laughs> over and out, you have landing clearance. Come in. And the article says the cargo cults still, cults still thrive to this day. The best known one, and I looked it up on Wikipedia, is, is being, it's named John Frum, F-R-U-M. And possibly they got this name from John Frum America. And it's a cult. It's headquartered on the island of uh, Tana in, in Vat, Vat, uh, Vanuatu. And uh, followers of these cargo cults are so passionately consumed with materialism that when the missionaries try to go to these islands and try to reach them, it's very difficult because they're not interested in the gospel. They're only interested in stuff. Bring us stuff like the other gods did. They don't want the gospel. And uh, it's really a, a neat parallel when you think about it, about our contemporary Christianity. When we, when we think about the word of faith movement, when we think about the positive confession, name it and claim it, all this stuff, prosperity, gospel, health, wealth, all that stuff. Uh, that's really, in effect, a Western-style <laughs> cargo cult. And basically they teach that God delivers tangible, consumable products on demand. You name it and claim it. And unfortunately, their proponents use prayer as a means of self-gratification. We've all seen them on TV. 
We've all maybe been to services where they do this. Um, they use it as a tool for getting such things as houses, cars, and clothes, and better, more money, all this stuff. And really, the God, small g, of the Word of Faith movement is little more than a utilitarian genie who exists to grant materialistic wishes to his followers. And now they don't go as, as far as the cargo cults, but you know what? As Christians, sometimes we may not go that far, but we still pray sometimes for the wrong things. And we pray in the wrong manner. See, we have to understand the essence of prayer, beloved, is not demanding things from God, but really listening and discerning his will. That's, that's the goal of prayer. The deeper believers' prayer lives become, the more they line up with God's will. We all know that to be true, as it's revealed in Scripture. And sometimes we're, when that happens, we're less inclined to ask for trivial things. Because we learn to desire what He desires in our relationship with God. We learn to understand what He loves. We also begin to understand what He hates. And so we come to pray, like Matthew 6, 9-10 says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when we look at these verses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 on prayer, they don't record a prayer that Paul prayed and he's telling them to pray this. No, he's, he's giving them a general report of how he no doubt habitually prayed for them. He wanted to, them to know, I have you covered in prayer. I'm covering your ministry in prayer. And it shows us that he prayed for the right things with the right motives. And that's so important. And it wasn't some ritual, it wasn't some routine, but really it was part of his life. On almost every page that Paul penned prayer somewhere crept in. And I think beneath the, the surface of his teaching, his preaching, his planning, all these things, you see this deep prayer life of the Apostle Paul. He was almost in a state of unbroken communion with God. And Paul's example <clears throat> really demonstrates that prayer is this unending preoccupation of those who know God intimately. Prayer isn't just a means to get something. It's an unending preoccupation of those who know God intimately. John MacArthur said this, the apostle's spiritual life could be likened to a volcano. Beneath the thin outer crust of his life was a burning, passionate heart for God. Frequently, the, volcano, the volcanic heart, heat of his heart would cause prayer to burst through the veneer of routine surface activities. This passage describes those eruptions. He says these two verses reveal the passionate heart of a man on fire for God. 
And so it, it shows us <clears throat> this brief section on prayer. It follows what I said earlier was a kind of a hard section to talk about, the wrath of God, the judgment, all this stuff. But you know what? The, the second coming is not only the believer's future hope, you could say, but it also has practical implications for our everyday life here and now. Uh, Peter kind of points that out in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 10. He gives us some exhortations <clears throat> concerning practical living. And he says this in verse 11. He says, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about all these eschatological events that are going to happen. And then in verse 11, he says, since all these things that we know around us are going to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, based on that information, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, he says, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. In 1 John 3, 3, the apostle John reminds us, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, our hope in Christ return affects how we live. It should affect how we live. Not just the understanding of, of the future, but our, our present life. We live in light of his return. And so let's look at the first of these six there in your outline. The first one is God's precept, precept the principle of prayer. He says there in verse 11, to this end we also pray for you. Paul wanted them to know that the primary responsibility of him as a spiritual leader, as an apostle, as a pastor, you could say even, is to pray for his flock and thereby reach into this resource of divine power and purpose from God. In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the people in the early church, the leaders said this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I mean, yes, there's time a pastor can spend preparing messages to preach on a Sunday, but you know what? That's one way to minister to the body, but that's a limited time. There's no limit to the time that I can pray for you or you can pray for me. There's no limit at all. You can do it at 3 in the morning, you can do it at 2 in the afternoon, you can do it whenever you want. And the end goal of all this, of the apostles' prayers for believers, was not that they'd have some nice clothes or more food to eat or a house to live in. It was for their spiritual growth. That's what they desired. His prayers were not aimless. His prayers were not meaningless. They weren't spoken in generalities. But they were very direct, and they were very to the point. And I'll give you an example of some of Paul's prayers. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. And look at verses 9 and 10. Romans 1, 9 and 10. Paul writes this in verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you. 
always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. Paul says, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Very direct. <laughs> I mean, when's the last time you, somebody came up to you and said, hey, brother, I've been praying for you. Oh, really? What have you been praying? That you're not sinning. <laughs> wow, I don't know if I'd like to hear that from somebody. That's, that's really what the equivalent is here. That you may do not, that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test. He's not saying in a pious way, in other words, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Direct to the point. Or in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, a wonderful prayer that Paul has. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all of the saints. Verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. In the knowledge of him. And down the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, listen, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know that the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, you can't even understand it, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Then he says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could even ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. 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 Or in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank my God in my, all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that, you, that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge, with all discernment, so that you may pr- approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. It's, it's endless. You can go through every epistle, whether it's Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, 5, all of them. They, they all have these kind of prayers in them. See, Paul petitioned the Lord for what? For their maturity. He was asking that God would grow them into the, the God, the, the people that, he, that God desires them to be. 
because he understood that things like sanctification, God's setting us apart, things like justification, they only come through God's sovereign grace. But they also don't come apart from human obedience. So his epistles are filled with specific commands and, and prayers that, of prohibitions and exhortations. God's sovereign purposes in prayer and obedience are all necessary items for sanctification to happen in our lives. And there's a paradox here in all this that we talk about. Because we, we've been talking about how Christ is coming back and God is sovereign and God is powerful over all And the basic question that we ask ourselves sometimes, if God is sovereignly controlling everything that happens, why do I have to pray? Very basic question. But it's a good question. If God is sovereign over everything, why pray? It's going to happen the way he wants it anyway. And the Bible strongly affirms his absolute sovereignty. And this question is similar to others that people bring up from time to time when we're talking about an infinite God and we are mere finite human beings. There are certain things in the Bible that make absolutely no sense to me. I can't make them make sense. And when I try to make them make sense, I have to compromise one of the truths I'm looking at. And you don't want to go down that road. I mean, for instance, an example is 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that God inspired every word of the Bible, did he not? So you could say, well, who wrote the Bible? God wrote the Bible. But guess what? He didn't dictate it. Doesn't say that. I mean, the Koran was a document that was supposedly dictated to Muhammad. But the Bible says, no, he uses personalities of these, these men who wrote the word of God. He uses their life experiences. He uses their vocabulary. And the Bible says that in 2 Peter 1.21, it wasn't just a dictation. No, it, the men were moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. That's why when you have four Gospels and you read all four Gospels, they're all different in a little bit. Luke, he was a doctor. He looked at things differently. Matthew was a financial guy. He looked at things differently. Okay, so it was, it was just, that's the way it is. So who wrote the Bible? Did, 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 did Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians or did God? Well, both. <laughs> both. He used Paul to do that. We can't comprehend that. We can't comprehend things like Jesus Christ being both fully God and fully man. And so people struggle with verses that even the Son of Man doesn't know when this is going to happen. And then they try to compromise one of those truths. Well, this is no... You can't understand it. You can't understand it. And so this strong, confident, biblical view of the sovereignty of God, I just want to make clear, it does not preclude prayer. It doesn't say, well, God's sovereign, so we just don't have to do anything now. No. I mean, if you hold that kind of a view, that's bad theology. That's fatalistic theology. 
I mean, I think if you're a believer who is not passionately praying, whether it's for the lost, for the church, for whatever, if you're really a believer, you're a Christian who's being living a disobedient lifestyle. We need to be people of prayer. And yet the Bible strongly affirms God's absolute sovereignty. In Job 42, verse 2, Job declared, I know that you, he's talking to God, God, you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's pretty clear. In Psalm 103, verse 19, David wrote this. He said, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And then he simply says, and his sovereignty, what? Rules over all. There's not one area, there's not one little, tiny little inch of earth where God is not sovereign over. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, it says this, the lot is cast into the lap. The lots were, they would cast lots to figure out, discern God's will. Kind of like throwing dice. And it says, the lot was cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Wow. He is sovereign over everything. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 to 11 declares this. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That is the Lord God Almighty telling us he is the sovereign of the earth. Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy, uh, Tim, Timothy, Timmy, we'll call him Timmy. Paul wrote to Timothy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, and he said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, he said this, He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So he asked the question, well, why pray? If God's in control of anything, everything, then why, why pray? But the second point there under that heading is the Bible also teaches us that God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. Just because God is sovereign, it doesn't do away with human responsibility. We see this in the scriptures in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19. They're basically acknowledging their sin for demanding a king and um, the people of Israel, they demanded a king because they wanted to be like everybody else. And so they begged Samuel. And they realized, well, this was wrong. And they, they, here's what they said to Samuel. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. <laughs> That's how serious they thought this was. And it was serious. For we have added to our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. That's in 1 Samuel twelve nineteen. And Samuel reaches out to them, and he wants to calm their fears. And he says in verses 20 and 22, it says, Samuel said to the, the people, Do not fear, for the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. 
what's Samuel saying? Samuel's reassuring these frightened people that God's not going to forsake them because he has a sovereign plan for the, the nation of Israel. He's not going to forsake Israel. And in verse 23, Samuel goes on and he says this, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord, listen, by ceasing to pray for you. So Samuel's saying, hey, don't worry about it. God's got a sovereign plan. He's going to work everything out. I still have a human responsibility to pray for you and instruct you in the good and right way. Even though he understood God's sovereign choice of Israel and understood that it was irrevocable, people today, some people believe in replacement theology, which says, well, the church replaced Israel because Israel was disobedient. That's not a, a true doctrine. That's not something that's biblical. The nation of Israel is still God's people. And those who bless Israel will be blessed, and those who curse Israel will be cursed. And if you don't believe me, just look at some of the nations that fall into those two categories, and you can see. And so, God will fulfill his promises to Israel. But nevertheless, here, Samuel acknowledges his responsibility to pray for the people and to instruct them in divine truth. And so he, his prayers not only expressed Samuel's affirmation of God's will, but also part of the realizing that, hey, I'm, I'm part of the instrument. God is using me in his sovereign plan. And you can, you can look at other areas of the Old Testament. Daniel's one. Daniel understood, Daniel 9, that from Jeremiah's prophecy that Babylon and the captivity would last 70 years. He knew that. That's what, what was prophesied. But in 3 to 19 of Daniel 9, he continues to pray for God to restore Israel from captivity. See, we're still called to pray even though God is sovereign. And we should be praying the cry of God's heart that his will be done. Knowing that God sovereignly chose all those who would be saved, we still pray. We still pray for their salvation. Romans 10.1, brethren, my heart's desire, Paul says, and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. See, it's very easy to become very fatalistic when it comes to understanding certain doctrines and you understand the doctrine of election. Wow, God chose us before the foundation of the world. It doesn't depend on me. God makes the first move. He, he's the one that draws us to Christ. All that is true. Salvation is of the Lord. But at the same time, he calls us to pray for people to be saved. And not only that, he calls us to witness, to leave these four walls and go out and, and to proclaim the gospel to those who are lost and dying. I mean, it's very easy to say, well, God's going to save them anyway, so why would? No. It, that's, that's a fallacy of a conclusion when you, if you draw that conclusion. You have to be very careful with that. Uh, even in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus warned Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, the Lord knew that it was impossible for Peter to lose his salvation. He knew that. But he did tell him, 
In verse 32, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. See, there's God's sovereignty, there's human responsibility. I mean, if Jesus, the sovereign God in human flesh, prayed that God's sovereign plan would come about, how can we do any less? <laughs> right? The final illustration comes from the last book of the Bible, there, Revelation 22, 20, when the Apostle John, talking about the return of Christ, he cries out and he says in prayer, he says, Come, Lord Jesus. So it aligns our hearts with the sovereign plan of God, but it also brings prayer into our lives through prayer, uh, through, through petitioning God for things. In James chapter 5, verse 16, James says, The effective prayer of a righteous man, what? Accomplishes much, avails much. And so when you, when you stop and you, you, you think about these almost paradoxes in Scripture, you know, you can't compromise either one. But at the same time, it, it does show us a clear understanding of God's sovereignty. But that sovereignty, that understanding of God's sovereignty, should never lead us to a passive resignation. God's got it all worked out. I'm just going to sit here in my armchairs of grace and kind of chill till he returns. No. It should motivate us to an active petition. You know, the days are short. We're closer to the Lord's return now than we were yesterday. Let's put it that way. Who knows when he's coming back? We don't know. But he is coming back. And we need to be ready. And one of the ways that we ready our hearts, we ready our churches, we ready ourselves is through prayer. Is through prayer. And so that's God's precept. He calls us to prayer. And Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you. We always pray for you. I mean, I wish I could say that about you. I can't. Because I don't always pray for you. You're on my heart, you're on my minds. But yeah, I, I couldn't say that. That's the goal. You know, we need to be fixated on eternity. Well, look at the second point here quickly, God's plan. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God, isn't that interesting, our God, it reminds us, and it reminds the Thessalonians, really, that God is not some distant being. You know, he didn't create everything and then run away and say, okay, I'll see you in a billion years. No, our God is a, uh, you know, tender, caring father. He's not some angry tyrant in heaven. He loves us. He cares for us. He's our God. That's why the Lord's Prayer, our Father, right? Very familiar, familial beginning to that, our Father who art in heaven. But look at what he says here. He says that our, our God may make you worthy, or some translations say count you worthy, right? I, I, I tend to believe make you worthy is a better translation because there's no way we would ever be counted worthy before a holy God on our own. And so you could say those who God makes worthy, he counts worthy. That's good. God makes worthy those whom he counts worthy. And of his, his calling, his calling, 
And as in many places in the New Testament, that word calling there has in view the irresistible, um, infallible result of salvation in somebody's life. When God calls someone in that salvation way, and he calls his elect to be saved, they will be saved. No one's going to go to heaven kicking and screaming. No, no, I don't want to go. No, God is going to somehow reach them. He's going to somehow transform their heart, their mind, and they're going to embrace the Lord and Savior. That should give us hope. Romans 1.6, Paul says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's the word. So it's, it's, it's kind of a you could equate it with salvation. If you're called, you will be saved in this sense. In, in 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul writes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, what's it say? Called to be saints, together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So it's this effectual saving call that Paul has in mind here. He's not talking about a general call that's open for everyone to respond. No, he's talking about the call to those who are elect. He referred to this call when he says, No one can come to me unless the what? The Father who sent me what draws him. See, this isn't a path you can make on your own. You aren't saved because one day you were staring at your navel and realized, whoa, I better get some help. Maybe I'll just cry out to God. And you know, No, God was at work. He is at work. God's effectual call activates in time his election of the redeemed in eternity. And he calls us with a holy calling, 2 Timothy 1.9 says, according to his own purpose, according to his own grace, which was granted to us. In Jude 1, we've been looking at Jude on Wednesday nights. If you're interested, you can come out to the study there, uh, 7 o'clock on Wednesdays. Jude 1 says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Or 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 to 10. Paul says, The God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. Why did God choose us? Not because of who we are. Not because of what we've done. But because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. If God never brought us to the light, we would never come to the light. Even here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, To this he called you through the gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says there that he wants us to be worthy, that he may make you worthy of his calling. And I put there in your outline, and we're not going to go through all these, but you can look them up on your own, some components you could say, of a worthy walk. What does a worthy walk in Christ look like? 
I'll just mention a couple here. Walk in the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but what? According to the Spirit. If you're going to walk worthy before the Lord, you better be empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, a walk in humility. This is important. Paul wrote in, in Ephesians 4, 2, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, there's the words, same words, to which you have been called with all humility, he says. And then he also says we should walk in gentleness in that same verse, and we should walk in patience. We should walk in love, walk in purity, contentment, faith, righteousness, unity, joy, thankfulness, walk in the light. I like this verse, Ephesians 5, 8, 9. For at one time you were in darkness. He's talking to believers. At one time you were in utter darkness. You were in darkness. You you couldn't see the hand in front of your face spiritually. But now you are light in the Lord. Therefore walk as children of the light. For the fruit of lights is found in all that is good and right and true. Are we walking in the light? Are we walking in joy? Are we walking in patience? Are we living a life that is worthy of our calling? Walk in faithfulness. Walk in truth. I'll leave you with this one last verse. 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. It says this. John says, by this we know that we are in him. Are you, are you struggling with security in your salvation? Are you doubting a lot? Are you doubts racing through your mind as far as did God save me or not? This is a great set of verses. He says, by this we may know that we are in him, that we are saved, that we are in Christ, that our position is in Christ. Whoever says he abides in him, look at what it says, ought to walk in the same way as he walked. And by the way, Christ modeled his life here on earth for us to follow, including his life of prayer. And it's, it's interesting to me that <clears throat> inevitably in any church, doesn't matter what church it is, the poorest attended meeting of the week is what? A prayer meeting. We have a prayer meeting here that meets at 8 o'clock. For the worship team and whoever wants to come. We meet back there in a circle. We pray. Have a little devotion. We pray for the service. We have a prayer meeting that meets at about 9.30, I think it is, over in the fellowship hall on Sunday mornings, specifically to pray for the service. Our ladies meet faithfully every week on Thursday nights to pray, or Thursday morning to pray for our church. You know, we need to be people of prayer. It's, it's, it's something that is so, it's so clear. And, and yet, when I say that, it's, it's almost like we have to be taught how to pray. And so hopefully in the coming weeks, we can learn that together as we look at the remaining uh, four prescriptions there that Paul has lined up for us. But let's bow in a word of prayer, and um, we'll have one last song I'd ask your prayer for me. I'm going through some health issues with my heart. Um, I have this weird little condition 
where my heart beats a couple beats and then it fires off a shot that goes through the roof. So it's been dealing with this for about two months. But I finally went to the doctor uh, Friday night and they uh, saw me and did some tests and figured out what it was. Now we just got to figure out why it's doing that. And so they did some blood work. And so hopefully this next week we'll have some answers. I'm fine. You know, I feel fine. They just feel a little winded and things like that. But I'd appreciate your prayers as I go through that. Um, you know, and this, this message was really probably for me more than you. So <laughs> we need to, we need to be, be praying about all these things. Father, we thank you for your love and your concern for each one of us. Lord, we know that none of us are guaranteed another breath. But Lord, you in your sovereign will have that day, uh, that appointed time when we will go to be with you. And Lord, what a glorious thing it was to be in a service yesterday for uh, Bill and his home going to, to you and just the faith that his wife Gloria um, possesses. And Lord, really realizing that uh, his faith was in you, his trust was in you, and, and we turn his soul over to your sovereign hands, Lord, and we pray that we will see him again one day. And Father, we're all going to be there one day. We're all going to be at a point in life where we breathe our last and our heart beats its last beat, and we are ushered into eternity. And Lord, what a glorious thing that is for the believer. We embrace that. We look forward to that. We maybe not look forward to the process. We pray that it's quick and and, uh, not painful, but Lord, we look forward to being in your presence. And Father, we pray for those who may not know you as their Lord and Savior. Maybe there's people even in this room or in the hearing of this message who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. And Lord, they need to know that there is no other option. You're not going to work yourself out of the, the pit of sin in which you live. The only way you're going to get out of that is if God delivers you. If he pulls you out of that miry pit. Lord, he, he, you, can, you can do that for folks. You do it all the time and you save them. And I pray that people would realize their need of a Savior. That they're not a, a good individual. They're not a perfect individual. And that's what's required for heaven. Perfection. And there's no way we can do that on our own. So we, we put our faith in our perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls all who are weary, all who are burdened down with sin to come to him. All who are thirsty, come and drink freely. It doesn't cost us anything because it costs him everything. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that work in people's hearts, that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Help me to live my life for Christ and Christ alone. And, Lord, I pray in the subject of prayer that we would, we would take seriously our commitment to pray as couples, as families, as churches, Lord, that we would understand that this is how you work. You work through the prayers of your people. And Lord, we pray that you would just bless our food across the way as well and our fellowship. And we thank you and give us a good week. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.